Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah 17. We are continuing in this topic of Israel and Bible prophecy and end times. And this message is a continuation of the last one that we gave, God's prophecies concerning Israel. So I hope that uh, if you weren't here for that last message, that you'll get a copy of it. It'll be very helpful to you in understanding tonight's message as they're meant to go together. And there's a lot of background information in the last one, uh, as I said, that will lend to your understanding of this evening's message. This evening's message is entitled, Islam, Israel, and the Current Conflict. Islam, Israel, and the Current Conflict. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your glorious word. Your word is awesome. It's wonderful, the things that are revealed in it to us. And Lord, I pray that tonight, uh, your your word, it's already alive and active. I, I pray that tonight you'd make us alive and active pertaining to your word. Lord, that you'd revive us this evening. We are living in unparalleled, unprecedented times, incredible times. And Lord, I, we as a church, feel a sense of honor that you have chosen us to live and be members of your kingdom at this moment in history. Such exciting times. We want to live in such a way that is reflective of what we know. That these are the final moments. That you are coming very soon for your church. Oh Lord, make that so real in our lives tonight as we study your word and look at what's going on in the world. Make it so real. So real that it would change our lives, Lord. That it would be tangible. That we wouldn't live the same anymore. We wouldn't do the same things. We wouldn't live for the same things. We wouldn't value the same things. But you would become preeminent in our lives and our hearts. That you would be enthroned upon our hearts even as you are on the throne concerning the nations. Thank you for that truth. That you are on the throne. And tonight I just pray that uh, this teaching would not Cause fear in the hearts of men and women, but rather faith, realizing that you're in control and you've got a beautiful story that is yet to completely unfold. Teach us of these things tonight, Lord. Bless this time in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I I really, really hope that you guys did your homework uh, from last time. I hope that you read through Ezekiel 38 and 39. I hope that you've read it several times and that you've read it very carefully. If you did your homework, then uh, you'll understand everything that I'm speaking about tonight. It'll be great for you. You'll you'll learn things and you'll understand. If you didn't do your homework, quite frankly, you might spend part of the time lost and kind of wondering where we at. I I really did expect you guys to do that. I hope that you know that I don't give you homework arbitrarily. I don't do it to lord it over you. I, I don't do it for some silly reason. I do it that we might learn together from the Word of God. And, and I think about what I would give you as homework. So I hope that you did your homework. Uh, if you did, it'll be profitable for you this evening. We are continuing in our study of eschatology. Eschatology meaning the study of last things. The end time scenario, judgment, life after death. Those are the last things. And the reason that we're willing to devote so much time to the study of eschatology is because at this moment in history, we are faced with an unprecedented situation, namely Islam. Now, Islam is currently the second largest religion in the world. Uh, The statisticians, people that put these numbers together, 
say that Christianity is the largest religion in the world, but to come up with that, they sort of lump a lot of things into Christianity that we might not necessarily lump in there. Uh, They lump in Roman Catholicism, uh, they lump in Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, so on and so forth. They kind of put it all together and say, well, that's Christianity. It's the largest religion in the world. But Islam is the second largest religion in the world, but it is the fastest growing religion in the world. In the last 50 years, Islam has grown by over 235%. Compare that with Christianity, which has grown less than 47% in the last 50 years. The reason that this is so important to us and why I believe we are facing an unprecedented situation is in light of two concepts within Islam. Number one, Islam is hostile to non-adherents. Those who do not adhere to Islam as being the true religion. Non-believers, infidels, they're often called in the Quran. Islam is hostile to non-believers. And number two, Islam is eschatological. That is, they have a framework, an end-time scenario. A competing one, really, with Christianity. And and even with Judaism. But it is an eschatological religion. They have an end time scenario which they believe is unfolding before their eyes. And certain key and prominent leaders within, within Islam believe that it is their duty at this moment in history to help those things unfold. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to return to point one. Islam is hostile to non adherence Now, All you need to do is pick up a Quran to discover this and begin to read it. I'll quote from you, uh, for you, a few of the surahs. Uh, Surah 3, verse 85 says, If anyone desires a religion other than Islam, it will never be accepted of him. Surah 4, verse 89, Seize them and slay them wherever you find them, and in any case, take no friends or helpers from their ranks. Surah 4, 101. For the unbelievers are open enemies to you. Surah 4, 102. For the unbelievers, Allah has prepared a humiliating punishment. Surah 8, 13 through 17. I will instill terror into the hearts of the unbelievers. Smite ye above their necks and smite all their fingertips of them. It is not you who slew them, it is Allah. And Surah 9.29, fight those who believe not in Allah nor in the last day. It is very clear from their scriptures that Islam is hostile to infidels or non-believers. Now, I, I had a wonderful question after second service. This is a little third service bonus for you. A guy came up and, and said, listen, Britt, I, I, I saw those passages, those surahs that you read from the Quran. But if you were to look at certain passages in the Old Testament you could draw the same conclusions. Now, there's a couple things you need to keep in mind there. Number one, what God was doing in the Old Testament was generally using nation to judge nation. He was judging unrighteous people groups that deserve the judgment of God. It was not an individual go-kill-everybody that does not adhere to Judaism that you see. It was not that way. It was... God using Israel to judge certain nations, and then God would use certain nations to judge Israel. But beyond that, don't forget that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he gave us the protocol. He said that we are to pray for our enemies. We are to bless those who persecute us. He desires that none would perish, that all would come to everlasting life. Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, he says, the the Jews may be our enemies for the sake of the gospel, 
But I would give up my own salvation that some of them might come to know Jesus Christ. Now that is a very different heart than Islam and Muhammad. That is very different. Now in the early writings of of Muhammad and and early on in the Quran, you see that Jews and Christians are generally esteemed. uh, Jews being called the people of the book. And it even says at times that Islam was to make friends of Jews and Christians. But there is something that not many Muslims will tell you about called the doctrine of abrogation. That is to say that later revelation given to Muhammad abrogated or canceled out earlier revelation. So Muhammad early on in the development of Islam was courting Jews and Christians. He really wanted them to be stoked on his religious gig. Well, guess what? They weren't. And when they weren't, Islam, uh, uh, excuse me, Muhammad turned his back on the Jews and Christians. And now instead of saying befriend them, he said hunt them down, seek them out, and kill them. And it is known within Islam that later revelation, later surahs abrogate earlier ones. So there's really a vast difference between what we see in the Old Testament as to what we see in the Quran. You understand that? Okay, the second point is that Islam has a competing eschatology of its own. A brief, a very brief overview of the Islamic end time scenario. Number one, they believe that in the last days, Jews will be gathered together. We believe the same thing, don't we? That's part of uh, Jewish eschatology. That's part of Christian eschatology. We believe the same thing. But they also believe that there will be a final battle between Muslims and Jews. It is also interesting that the Quran contains a version of the Gog and Magog invasion, the Gog and Magog war that we're studying right now. It's in the Quran. It has its own version, but it has a different outcome. In the Quran, Islam is triumphant in the Magog invasion. In the Bible, the God of the Jews triumphs, and we'll read that later on. They also believe in the last times that the 12th Iman will appear. He's known as Mahdi. I don't know how to pronounce it, but sounds like muddy. And uh, he is their sort of own Messiah. Interestingly enough, they also believe that Jesus will come back to the earth. And that when he comes back, he will work with Mahdi, that is uh, the 12th Iman, the Messiah of Islam, to overthrow al-Dajjal, who is the Antichrist, at a battle which will take place in Syria. They believe that after Jesus comes back and battles against the Antichrist with the 12th Imam, that Jesus will then go to Jerusalem for morning Muslim prayers. When he gets to Jerusalem, they believe that the Imam will seek to yield his place to Jesus, but Jesus will refuse and worship behind him according to the Sharia of Muhammad or the laws of Muhammad. So they believe that Jesus will come again. He'll fight with uh, the, the Messiah of Islam. He'll go to prayer with him. He'll give him the preferential place. Jesus will worship behind him according to the rules of Muhammad. They then believe that Jesus will proceed to kill all the pigs on earth and break all the crosses, thereby confirming Islam is the one true religion. Pigs being a picture of the Jews, crosses being a picture of you, Christians. They then believe that Allah will destroy all the nations except Islamic ones. And then that after 40 years on earth, Jesus will die and be buried next to Muhammad in Medina. 
They believe that he will die a physical death because they don't think that he ever has died a physical death. Islam denies that Jesus Christ ever died upon the cross. But when he comes back, he will then die after 40 years. Now, there's some similarities, obviously, in Islamic eschatology and in biblical eschatology. And there's a very obvious reason why that is. You need to understand that the Bible which is before you predates both Islam and the Quran, as well as the Hadith, a gathering of Islamic writings. The Bible predates those things. And we know from history that Muhammad was a student of the Bible and of the Jewish and Christian religions, not by way of reading it because he was illiterate, but by way of conversation. And he knew what was in our scriptures. And so if you see similarities at times from the Bible to the Quran, it's something that we might call a ripoff. Now, be there some similarities, there are also huge and fundamental differences. Huge and fundamental differences. Namely, that in the Bible, Jesus comes as the Savior of the world, not the killer of Jews and Christians. And instead of uh, destroying all the nations except Islamic ones, you read at the end of Zechariah 14 that after Jesus establishes his kingdom, that every year he invites all the nations to come up and worship him in Jerusalem. There are some huge and astounding differences, and it really pivots on the person of Jesus Christ. And your Bible tells you concerning prophecy in Revelation 19.10 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Or in other words, all Bible prophecy has to do with Jesus Christ. Every single bit of it, from beginning to end, it has to do with Jesus Christ. They are all about him. Even all the prophecies we've been learning uh, concerning Israel and the surrounding nations, they all point to and they will all culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that he is the name above every name. That he is the creator of all things. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one for whom all things exist. His name is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He is the redeemer and the conqueror. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the everlasting ruler, the most high God, Jesus Christ. Amen. And all of Bible prophecy is about him. I must ask everyone in this room tonight, do you know him? Do you know him? Not by reputation, but by relation. Do you have a relationship with this Jesus Christ about whom all of the scriptures speak? I mean, have you come to the point where you've recognized that you're a sinner? And you have come to God and you said to God, God, I'm a sinner. I mean, I do bad things. But I understand that you gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me and that he was willing to pay the price for my sins. And that after three days in the grave, he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death and the grave that he might give me new life. And so God, I'm asking you to forgive me. I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I turn toward you. And I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. Have you done that? You've got to do that. Because at the moment you do that, you are promised eternal life in heaven. And you are promised the covering of God in this life. Jesus said, this, said it this way. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The moment you become a Christian, 
You confess that you're a sinner, you repent of your sins, ask Jesus to save you according to the work on the cross. You are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Your address is changed. And you become one of his. You become a child of the king. And guess what? The king looks out for his kids. And you will have his protection and his covering and his blessing and his presence in your life. The day he's done with you and not one moment before, you'll be gone. And you will be in eternity with the Lord. And it will be awesome. Do you know him? These are perilous times in which we live. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, I can imagine that these times, if you uh, don't have your head in the sand, are somewhat frightening. But Jesus told us that there would be days like these. He forewarned us. And the Bible tells us that he is on the throne and he is in control of the fate of nations. But I just ask you one more time, is he in control of your life? He is in control of nations, but he has given you free will. Have you surrendered the whole of your life to him? Not a portion thereof, but have you surrendered your life to him? Now is the time to do it because we're living in perilous times. The Bible tells us, and we're looking at tonight, that there is a battle that is coming that will be focused on Israel, that will involve several nations, that will affect the whole world, and in which God will bring about an amazing victory on behalf of Israel that will make the name of our God famous. It is not the battle of Armageddon, that's another one, though it may coincide with the battle of Armageddon. But it may also possibly be the next prophecy that we see fulfilled. Ezekiel 38 and 39, that battle. Now, I have told you since the beginning of this church, if you've been here for any time, you've heard me say it, that the rapture is the next event on God's prophetic timeline. And so it is, in the sense that the rapture is imminent. The Bible teaches the imminency of the rapture of the church, meaning it could happen at any moment. There isn't anything that has to happen before it. What is the rapture of the church, you ask? Well, that's when the trump of God sounds... And the voice of Michael the archangel is heard, and in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ are raised first, and then you and I who are alive and remain are caught up in the sky to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. It is when he comes, amen, amen. It is when he comes for those who are his to remove them to a safe place where he has been preparing a mansion for us while the tribulation period unfolds on earth. Now, it is imminent. Prophetically speaking, there's nothing that has to happen prior to it. It could happen at any time. It might happen before my next point. I wish it would. (laughs) But it is also very conceivable and possible that this battle could happen next. It doesn't have to happen before the rapture. The rapture is imminent. But it could be that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the next thing that we see leap off the pages of Scripture and into the headlines. Now, as I shared with you in our last lesson, there are multiple theories as to when the battle of Magog might take place. Some see it coinciding with the battle of Armageddon happening at that time at the end of the tribulation just before Jesus comes back. Some see it as uh, happening in the middle of the tribulation period. Some see it as happening before the tribulation but after the rapture. And others argue that it will happen before the rapture. Now I'll tell you, I've been convinced of almost all of those at one time or another in my life. 
There are times where I've been sure that it was during the battle of Armageddon. And I've been positive that it was after the rapture, but before the tribulation. And sometimes I've almost been convinced that it's in the middle of the tribulation. And right now I'm about to be convinced that it happens before. We can't be dogmatic about it. We can't say for sure, but it's fun to think about it. And if you did your homework, you developed an opinion. I want to do an informal poll, not as to who did their homework. I'm not going to call you out by, like that. But as to when you think it is. Your, your, your opinion is your opinion. But as to when you think it is. Let's do an informal poll. Please don't be shy. Just let me know what you think. How many of you think that the battle of, Arma, of uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 coincides with Armageddon? How many of you think that? Okay, wow, you do, Drew. Cool. Uh, that's more than in any other service. All right. There's very good reasons to believe that. How many of you think that it happens in the middle of the tribulation? Raise your hand. Nobody? Not a single one? Wow, you know, that's Jacob Prash's view. That's Jacob Prash's view, and he's pretty smart. He'll convince you up and down, I'll tell you what. Uh, How many of you think before the tribulation, but after the rapture in that unspecified period of time? Raise your hands. Okay, okay, that's the most so far. How many of you think that it could happen before the rapture? Raise your hands. Oh, most of you. Okay, that's the view of Tim LaHaye, uh, a, a very prevalent view, a view that has uh, sort of ebbed and flowed in its popularity in the church in the last couple decades. But I think that there's good reason for you to believe that. Now, and some of that will become apparent tonight, maybe. But last time, we spoke about the nations that would be involved in this battle. And we explained what motivating and uniting factors currently exist that make this battle seem very impending. Namely, of course, Islam and its religious and political agenda. And we won't necessarily go through those nations again, but we'll throw them up on the map for you that you could just refresh your memory. Remember, it was Magog, identified as Russia. And it was Persia, identified as Iran. Ethiopia, identified as Sudan. It was Put, which is North Africa, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, that area. It was Gomer, which may be parts of Europe. And it was also Beth Togarma, which is Turkey, and the regions east of Turkey, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. Now, as we look at this map, you see little Israel there, (laughs) the little tiny Israel. Um, You notice two things immediately. Number one, Israel is once again surrounded and drastically outnumbered, right? You see that very clearly. But, and we talked about that last time, but there's something else that you see very clearly that we didn't talk about, and that's this. Her fiercest enemies of recent history who are also her nearest neighbors, are not included in this conglomeration of nations that comes against Israel in this battle. Now, that's very interesting if you know the modern history of Israel. Because in the War of 1948, in the War of 1967, and in the War of 1973, it was her closest neighbors, namely Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, that came against her. And yet they're not mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You see that those aren't the ones that are coming against her. Why is that? Well, recent developments compared with the prophetic word give us some insights as to why. Egypt. You know, Egypt for a millennia has been an enemy of Israel. And Egypt is uh, the, the one that was very aggressive in all of those three modern wars. 48, 67, and 73. But something unprecedented happened in 1979. 
They were the first Arab state to sign a peace treaty with Israel. No other Arab state had ever signed a peace treaty with Israel before. Egypt did it in 1979. It was such a big deal that uh, Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt at that time, and Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister of Israel, were jointly rewarded the Nobel Peace Prize that year. This was a very big deal in the Middle East and around the world. Unprecedented. An Arab nation, a Muslim nation, just made peace with Israel. Not everybody was happy about it. In fact, just a couple years later, on October 6, 1981, uh, President Sadat was there at a military parade that they were having in Egypt. And as he was saluting the convoy going by, some uh, men jumped out of one of the vehicles and threw grenades and opened fire with machine guns, killed President Sadat and 20 members of his cabinet right there while they were watching the parade. Later on, it was revealed that they were members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, And they opposed Sadat's landmark peace treaty with Israel. And they wanted to impose Islamic rule in Egypt. So it was a big deal, but it was not popular in Islam or among Arabs. And it was almost 20 years till another Arab nation dared to make a peace treaty with Israel. And the next one was Jordan. And they had been in a state of war with Jordan since 1948. And then in 1994... Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel. It was a huge deal. Everybody in Israel was excited. Everyone in Jordan was excited. Uh, People around the world were very excited. You know who wasn't excited? Hezbollah. Syria was seriously bummed out too. But Hezbollah was so bummed out that 20 minutes before the signing, Hezbollah started firing rockets from North Lebanon into Israel, the northern Galilee region. And all the residents of the northern Galilee there had to go down in their bomb shelters just as they had been in the last month. And they took their little transistor radios and their TVs with them so they could listen to the historic signing of the second ever peace treaty with an Arab nation. But here we have... Two countries that have always been at war with modern Israel that now have peace treaties with her. And so it becomes very obvious to you just in modern history, just in the last 30 years or so, why they're not included in Ezekiel 38 or 39. Prior to that, you'd be baffled. You'd say, why wouldn't Egypt and Jordan be part of those nations? Now, even more amazing is Iraq. Iraq was uh, part of all three invasions Um, behind the scenes in 1973, but they uh, provided an expeditionary force in the Battle of 1967. They were very involved in 1948, and you would think that Iraq would come against Israel any time, but what has happened in Iraq? Well, we've gone in there, and a few things have changed in Iraq. And it's safe to say that Iraq will not be attacking Israel in the near future, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so just in very recent history... We have an explanation as to why Iraq, one of the fiercest enemies of Israel, is not in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Just three years ago, that wouldn't have made any sense. You guys are seeing Bible prophecy unfold before your very eyes. Even more recently, Lebanon. A very recent development, obviously. A little more tricky. But uh, Lebanon is is part of this uh, UN ceasefire, of course, uh, with Israel, Hezbollah, and Israel. There have been violations of the ceasefire if you're watching the news, and there will continue to be violations. In fact, I'll tell you right now in all confidence, it will not last. Because just today in Israel, today is like Monday in Israel, Sunday is like their Monday, um, 
the Israeli cabinet met, and the minister of defense, whose name is Amir Peretz, said that Israel must now prepare for the next round in Lebanon. So they know that this uh, ceasefire will not last. They are preparing for the next round in Lebanon. Just 10 days ago, I was wondering how Lebanon could not be included in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Obviously aggressive toward Israel, always have been. The hosts, the very willing hosts of Hezbollah. But now the international community is very involved in Lebanon. And once the UN gets their fingers in something, they're slow to pull it out. And now they're involved in Lebanon. And so it's very easy to conceive uh, that Lebanon would not necessarily be engaged in a conflict with Israel as it pertains to Ezekiel 38 or 39. Either because of a treaty or pressure from the UN or a better theory, the one that I subscribe to, is that they will receive a serious thrashing in the next round from Israel. A serious thrashing. We know either way that they absolutely will not be involved in the battle because they're not listed here in Ezekiel 38. It's amazing. We're seeing it just in the last couple of weeks become so clear. Now the last one is Syria. A very recent development brings a very ancient and yet still to be fulfilled prophecy into view. Go to Isaiah 17 now if you're not already there. Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17, we're going to look at the first three verses. Isaiah 17, starting in verse 1. The oracle concerning Damascus. Now, Damascus is the capital of where? Syria. The oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Orar are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in. And there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will, excuse me, disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus. This was written 2,700 years ago. And it has never been fulfilled. There are many prophecies in Isaiah that have been fulfilled. There are many more that have not been fulfilled. This one we know has not been fulfilled. How do we know that? Because any historian worth his salt will tell you that Damascus is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world, if not the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. So it has never ceased from being a city. It has never become a fallen ruin. The flocks have never laid down in it, so to speak. This is yet to be fulfilled. Now, follow me on this. When this conflict first began last month, I shared with you guys some inside information uh, that I had from military sources in Israel. I shared it with you prior to the actual sermon beginning because at this time, this information, I, I could not be recorded saying that. And so I I hope you remember I shared it with you uh, just before we started the sermon. Now, a couple things that I shared. One thing that I shared was this, that Israel had, according to my sources in the Israel, they had fully drawn up, executable, ready-to-go plans to destroy Damascus. I also told you 
that uh, the Air Force Base in the Valley of Armageddon, known as Ramat David, have the, had their F-16s fully loaded with nuclear arsenals. Not an everyday thing. They have their F-16s fully loaded with nuclear arsenals. Not Hiroshima-type bombs, but ones that will mess up your day nonetheless. <laughs> now, immediately, just days after I told you guys that, you begin to hear in the media, if, if you pay attention, Israel saying, we have no plans for Damascus. We have no intention of moving against Damascus. We have no desire to destroy Damascus. You just heard it pop up sort of randomly within the news, statements from Israel. Why would they be saying that if there weren't plans to destroy Damascus? Now, you and I knew better because we had inside sources. But you know who else knew better? Syria. Because Syria put their army, their military, on the highest alert that they've been on since the Yom Kippur War of 1973. They began to perceive that Israel had an eye on Damascus. Then it began to change. In the second half of this conflict, you begin to hear a man named Nasrallah, who is the head of Hezbollah, threaten to land a missile in Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, Tel Aviv is like the equivalent of our New York City. It's like the commercial center of Israel, whereas Jerusalem would be kind of like our Washington, D.C., you know what I mean? So they wanted to hit Tel Aviv, and they had missiles, rockets, that had the range of hitting Tel Aviv. If you've uh, been doing your homework, you'll know that they had missiles that were assembled, excuse me, um, uh, um, manufactured in North Korea shipped to Iran, assembled and painted in Iran, and then shipped on trucks through Syria to South Lebanon and given to Hezbollah. And we know for sure that these had the range of being able to hit Tel Aviv. Now, when Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, began to threaten to hit Tel Aviv, then Israel came out in the media and very clearly said this, almost verbatim. If Hezbollah lands one missile in Tel Aviv, Damascus will pay dearly. If Hezbollah lands one missile in Tel Aviv, Damascus will pay dearly. Now they were beginning to change their tune. Why Damascus? Well, Israel has always perceived Syria as being the real troublemaker in the Middle East. By the way, they are the conduit through which all of the arms that go to Hezbollah flow. If Syria would simply say no to those arms flowing from Iran to South Lebanon, then Hezbollah wouldn't be armed. So they know that Damascus is directly responsible to one degree or another, and they issued a warning to Syria. If a single missile from Hezbollah lands in Tel Aviv, we are going to come against you. And their intention was to come with F-16s loaded with a nuclear arsenal. That would fulfill Isaiah 17 pretty quickly. Now the situation, of course, has changed. We, we now have a ceasefire. There's no longer an immediate threat to hit Tel Aviv. And so then neither is there an immediate threat for Israel to hit Damascus in retaliation. And yet, I believe that we are even closer to the fulfillment of Isaiah 17. Let me explain. Please listen very carefully. Follow me on this. This conflict was Israel's worst performance in a military conflict in modern history. It was their worst performance. Listen to me. In 1967, they were attacked by three nations. They pushed them out of Israel and into their own borders and took some of their land in six days. In six days on three different fronts, they defeated three nations. 
1948 was even more amazing in my estimation. They were attacked by five nations. They had only been a nation for a day. Attacked by five nations. What did they do? They pushed them out of Israel into their own countries and almost doubled their land mass. 1973, same thing. They were attacked by, attacked by Egypt in the south. And Syria in the north, what do they do? They push Syria out of the Golan Heights. They take back the Golan Heights, Israel does. Simultaneously, by the way, under the leadership of Ariel Sharon, God have mercy on him in his coma. Under the leadership of Ariel Sharon, they push the Egyptian army across the Sinai Peninsula, across the Suez Canal, and they begin to march, and they were just 12 miles from Cairo when Egypt called up USA and the UN and everybody else and said, please help us, Israel's beating us up, help us. And then there was called a ceasefire. In six days, in 1967, they pushed back three nations, but in a month's fighting, they were unable to deal with Hezbollah. This is almost an astounding display of bad military on the part of Israel. This is their worst performance in modern history. They were timid in their response. They did not achieve their objectives. Now, let me tell you what the fruit of that is. Very profoundly now. The Muslim world views the ceasefire as a victory for Islam. They're proclaiming it to be a victory. And what they're saying is, Israel was not able to stop Hezbollah. They came at us for 34 days and we were able to still launch a continuous barrage of missiles. They did not put a dent in Hezbollah, they were saying. They were saying, we are victorious. And now the myth of an unbeatable Israeli army has been dispelled in the mind of Islam. In the Jerusalem Post last week, reporter Khalid Abu Tomei noted in an analysis in Thursday's Jerusalem Post, Arabs are once again talking about shattering the myth that has haunted them since the humiliating defeat of the Arab armies in 1967. That is, that the IDF is invincible. At this moment, Islam, for the first time since 1948, is saying, we can beat Israel. We don't think they're invincible anymore. We can take them. Look what Hezbollah did. They weren't even able to take Hezbollah. Now, if you understand the political situation, you know that that is an unacceptable, an unacceptable situation for Israel because that threatens their very existence. For the last 50 years or so, their military might and their victories and their track record in battles has been the deterrent against Islam and the surrounding Arab and Persian nations. That has been the deterrent. They are basically, have been saying for 50 years, gosh, we can't beat these guys. We cannot beat Israel. And it was effective deterrent. Now, for the first time, really, they're thinking, okay, we can beat them, guys. We can do this. And so, in light of that, I spent some time on the phone this week with some of my sources in Israel, military sources. And here's a quote. They said, the current perception of the Arab states in Islam is unacceptable to Israel and our national security. And they said, next time we will hit hard, we will hit fast, we will hit decisively, and we will hit Damascus. I said, what do you mean next time? You mean if next time? No, I don't mean if next time, he said. He said, when 
we will hit hard, we will hit fast, we will hit decisively, and we will hit Damascus. As I explained to you, they believe that Syria is a real troublemaker. Syria is kind of like a provoker. It's not the most mighty one. It's not the biggest bully in the Middle East, but it's like that little one that runs around and pokes and, you know, sticks his finger in your chest and sort of stirs up the nest a little bit. Always been a thorn in the side of Israel. Beyond that, Israel knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the weapons of mass destruction are in Damascus. Now, I shared that with you a month ago. Uh, I happen to be privy to information uh, uh, from the man who oversaw uh, the flights, uh, the Israeli reconnaissance flights that photographed the weapons of mass destruction for the USA. The Israeli Air Force was hired by the USA to get pictures of them. The Israeli Air Force took pictures of the weapons of mass destruction, handed them to the USA, and then expected to hear the USA then justify the war in Iraq by saying, look, here they are. Here's the weapons of mass destruction. The USA didn't do that. Leaders of the military in Israel were going, what, is, what are you guys doing in America? We handed you photographic evidence of the weapons of mass destruction, and you guys are not making it public. Very interesting that a couple weeks ago I was told on Fox News at 6.15 in the morning, a former Iraqi commander came on the news and said, yeah, I can't believe that you guys don't tell everybody where the weapons of mass destruction is. We shipped them all to Damascus. I'm told that it was just on the news briefly and then you didn't see it on the air anymore. But Israel knows that they are the weapons of mass destruction in Damascus and that poses an immediate threat to the existence of Israel. And so they intend to destroy Damascus just as Isaiah 17 says it will be destroyed. I believe that we could see this at any moment. Gosh, we are living in such exciting times. It's unbelievable the things that we are seeing. So Syria is not mentioned in the Ezekiel 38 invasion for obvious reasons. Uh, Damascus will be destroyed and therefore crippling them. Uh, Understand that those nations that we just went through, this is the first time in history, to my knowledge, that we can delineate, that we can clearly point to, to, to obvious reasons why those nations will not be part of the conglomeration that come against Israel. Before that, it was just a quandary. Why would these nations not be included? They're Israel's nearest neighbors and fiercest enemies. And now we can go through them one by one and say, well, it's very obvious. Iraq has been taken out. Peace treaty, peace treaty. Uh, Lebanon is now in a different situation. Damascus is about to be destroyed. For the first time in history, we see this so clearly. You guys are so privileged by the Lord to be seeing Bible prophecy unfold before your very eyes. It's incredible. Now, if you've been watching the news, you know that there is another immediate threat to Israel. By the way, there's an immediate threat to the USA and Great Britain. You know that, don't you? You saw on the news uh, the plot to blow up airliners over U.S. soil that was foiled um, by Great Britain's intelligence, but we'll we'll just chalk it up to Jesus Christ, won't we? I mean, I just believe that the Lord intervened there and just had mercy on America and Great Britain. I I really believe that. Uh, We are told that the death toll would have far exceeded that of September 11th. America and Great Britain have an immediate threat against them, but they're not the subject of Bible prophecy. Israel is. But they do lend themselves to Bible prophecy in one way. Their utter absence. Their utter absence. There is no mention of a nation coming to the rescue of Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
There's no mention of that. We would expect America, possibly Great Britain, they're so finicky, but we would expect America perhaps at this moment to defend Israel this battle war to unfold unless, unless America had some overwhelming drama of its own. In light of those foiled plans to blow up airliners over U.S. soil, do you know what the FBI speculated? The FBI said this week, we believe that the airliners that were to be blown up in America were a plot to put America on its heels and in a defensive mode and in a self-absorbed stance so that then the nations that are coming against Israel could attack her unhindered by American military might. The FBI speculated that the goal was to put America in such a place that America, when Israel was in attack, America said, we're sorry, Israel. It's in our own borders now. We have got our own drama. Our own people are dead. You're going to have to take care of yourself. We can't come to your rescue right now. Leaving them very vulnerable with the current Islamic mindset that they are no longer invincible. And so, there is this new threat possible threat, immediate one against Israel. Did you hear it in the news in the last couple of weeks? It came from President Ahmadinejad, our favorite guy, president of Iran. He and his advisors have said that Iran will answer the world regarding the future of its nuclear program on August 22nd. The world, as you know, has been pressuring Iran, what is your gig with this nuclear thing? We don't like it. Russia and China, by the way, have been standing next to, generally speaking, Iran, defending them and their right to develop a nuclear program. But Ahmadinejad said, you will have my answer concerning my nuclear program on August 22nd. Now, that's two days from now, bro. That's two days from now. That's on Tuesday. And that Tuesday this year is a very significant day on the Muslim calendar. This year, it corresponds to the 27th day of the month of Rajab, uh, which in the year of 1427 was by tradition the night when many Muslims commemorate the night flight of the Prophet Muhammad on the winged horse Burak, first to the farthest mosque, usually identified with Jerusalem, and then to heaven and back. You read about that in uh, Surah 17.1. Muhammad took this night flight on this winged beast, and he went to Al-Aqsa, the furthest place or the furthest mosque. That is why the mosque on the Temple Mount right now is called Al-Aqsa Mosque, the furthest mosque. They speculate, Islam does, that he went to Jerusalem, though it doesn't say he went to Jerusalem. In fact, did you know that Jerusalem is never mentioned a single time in the Quran? It's mentioned over 800 times in the Bible. It's not mentioned one time in the Quran. And yet Islam has the audacity to say it is our third holy city. Medina is number one, or excuse me, Mecca is number one for us. Medina is number two, but Jerusalem is number three. And by the way, we don't even like you Jews at the Western Wall because we believe it's at the Western Wall where Muhammad tied up Barak, his winged horse, that night when he visited. Concerning that night, Islamic tradition believes that Muhammad, along with the angel Gabriel, went to the Temple Mount and then to heaven in a bathing of light over Jerusalem. A member of the Syrian government this week said that he believed that concerning Ahmadinejad's threats, his plan is to bathe the sky over Jerusalem in light once again on August 22nd with a nuclear device. 
Um, listen, it's not some small-town pastor speculating on these things. Here's an article from the Wall Street Journal. The headline being, Scholar warns uh, that Iran's Ahmadinejad may have cataclysmic events in mind for August 22nd. Now look who this is. It's Princeton's Bernard Lewis, arguably the world's foremost expert on Middle Eastern history. And he writes... There's a radical difference between the Islamic Republic of Iran and other governments with nuclear weapons. This difference is expressed in what can only be described as the apocalyptic worldview of Iran's present rulers. In Islam, as in Judaism and Christianity, there are certain beliefs concerning the cosmic struggle at the end of time. Gog and Magog, Antichrist, Armageddon, and for Shiite Muslims, the long-awaited return of the hidden imam ending in the final victory of the forces of good over evil. However, these may be defined in Islam. Uh, the good side is defined as Islam. President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and his followers clearly believe that this time is now and that the terminal struggle has already begun as it, and is indeed well advanced. It may even have a date, indicated by several references by the Iranian president to giving his final answer to the U.S. about nuclear development by August 22nd. He concludes, This might well be deemed an appropriate date for the apocalyptic ending of Israel and, if necessary, of the world. It is far from certain that Mr. Ahmadinejad plans any such cataclysmic events precisely for August 22nd, but it would be wise to bear the possibility in mind. I don't want to scare you, so I'll just tell you very clearly. According to Bible prophecy, it is impossible that August 22nd would be the end of Israel. It is also impossible that it would be the end of the world. It doesn't line up with Bible prophecy. It will be neither of those, but it may be, it may be the time where Iran engages directly with Israel which I believe then is the beginning of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I am of the opinion that Iran engaging directly with Israel will be the hook in the jaw of Magog, spoken of in Ezekiel 38 verse 4, where God says, I will put a hook in the jaw of Gog and Magog and bring him down against my people Israel. I believe that the hook in the jaw will be a direct conflict between Iran and Israel. Why? Because Russia backs Iran politically, ideologically, and militarily. Iran, or excuse me, Russia has sold billions of dollars of arms to Iran and has been a political defense to them and means to be a military defense to them. So I think it will be the hook in the jaw. It could be as soon as August 22nd that we might see the beginning of the Magog invasion. I don't know, but it's kind of exciting, isn't it? It's possible. But Those of you that remember the Cold War, anybody here remember the Cold War? I'm too young, but I've heard about the Cold War. If you, ah, no, just kidding. If you came through the era of the Cold War, you have a false sense, we have, a false sense of security when it comes to nuclear conflict. Here's why. When I went to UCSB, when I was studying there, I took a class on nuclear proliferation. In that class, they taught us an international doctrine that was in place during the Cold War known as Mutual Assured Destruction, M-A-D, MAD for short. Mutual Assured Destruction. Here's what that doctrine was. Basically, it said that, Russia, if you fire a nuclear device at us, we already have detection systems in place that will automatically fire a nuclear device toward you. 
And Russia said, if you do that, we have detection systems in place that will automatically fire more nuclear devices to you. And America said, if you do that, we have detection systems in place that will automatically fire more nuclear missiles toward you. And when you calculated the nuclear power that would be exuded in that conflict, it was enough to wipe both Russia and the U.S. out several times over. And if one dared to press the button, both of them would be destroyed. Mutual assured destruction. It was a very effective deterrent to a nuclear conflict in the Cold War. It kept Russia and it kept the U.S. from ever pressing the button. But this is not the Cold War and the enemy is no longer Russia. It is Islam. And Islam is a different enemy altogether. Mutually assured destruction is not a threat to Islam. Islam has no problem dying in a conflict with non-believers. In fact, they consider that to be a martyr's death, which promises them 72 virgins in paradise. In their mindset, that is as good as any victory. I will read from you now, or for you, an excerpt from an Iranian 11th grade school book, which quotes the Ayatollah Khomeini as saying, I am decisively announcing to the whole world that if the world devourers, i.e. the infidel powers, you and I, wish to stand against our religion, we will stand against their whole world and will not cease until the annihilation of them all. Either we all become free or we will go to the greater freedom, which is martyrdom. Either we shake one another's hands in joy at the victory of Islam in the world or all of us will turn to eternal life and martyrdom. In both cases, victory and success are ours. Princeton's Bernard Lewis once again comments and says, in this context, mutual assured destruction, the deterrent that worked so well during the Cold War, would have no meaning, Lewis wrote. At the end of time, there will be general destruction anyway, they believe. What will matter will be the final destination of the dead, hell for the infidels and heaven for the believers. For people with this mindset, mutually assured destruction is not a constraint. It is an inducement. An inducement. Do you understand that if Iran arms itself nuclearly, with nuclear weapons, that it is not a nation becoming armed. It is a religion becoming nuclear capable. It is Islam becoming armed with nuclear devices. And the problem with that is twofold. Number one, they are aggressively hostile to non-adherents of Islam. And number two, they have an end-time scenario that tells them they must defeat non-believers, most notably Jews and Christians. And we have a madman named Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, who believes he is ushering in the final scenario of Islamic eschatology and that he would do a wonderful favor for Muhammad and Allah should he use a nuclear device against Israel and the world. I understand that when we sit here in America, these things are hard to believe. We drink our Starbucks. We enjoy nice things. We don't like these things in America. America has never liked these things. America loves to bury its head in the sand. We did so in the First World War. got us in a little bit of trouble. Did so in the Second World War. got us in a whole world of trouble, didn't it, with Pearl Harbor. America likes to deny when things like this are going on in the world. I'm telling you that we cannot afford 
to ignore the current threat of Islam. It's very interesting to me that just yesterday I received in the mail a letter from a Bible scholar named Justin Alfred, whom I have the pleasure to know a little bit. Uh, He holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures from UCLA. And in this letter, it was an open letter to several pastors, me being one of them, he addressed this fact that the churches in America are not taking seriously enough the current threats of Islam. He says, he draws a historical analogy, he says, there were those who seriously questioned the influence and effect of Adolf Hitler in his book Mein Kampf that came out in 1924 while Hitler was in Landsberg prison in Munich. However, due to the fact that many did not take Hitler seriously, the hell and havoc that he brought upon the world is unquestionably real and very well documented. The very same could be said for the Communist Manifesto, co-authored by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and published in 1848. Who would have thought in the mid-19th century that such a document by two virtually unknown and insignificant men would have such an impact on the world? But it did, and grievously so, and it is still adversely affecting us today. Thus, with all due respect, only an utter fool would not take seriously the lunatic ranting of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Iran's president, as well as those of Osama bin Laden, al-Zawahahi, and Hassan Nasrallah, etc., Only a fool would ignore these things. Church, are you alive? Are you listening? Are you reading your Bible? Your Bible ought to be like this in these last days. I mean, you ought to be absorbing these things because you could hold this in front of the TV screen right now and go, wow, okay, this makes sense. Wow, this is unbelievable. And I think from the things that we discussed tonight that we may be standing on the very eve of, on the cusp of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, which, by the way, if you did your homework, and I hope you did, you saw very clearly there that it most likely involves nuclear weapons. You also saw that it ends in a great victory for Israel, compliments once again of the God of Israel. Amen? In case you didn't do your homework, let's read the end of that battle. Ezekiel 38. Oh, boy. We're almost out of time. I'm going to ask you guys for five more minutes. Are you cool? Five more? You're very gracious. Five more minutes. I want you to see the end of the battle because I understand that the stuff that we've talked about is very heavy, but you need to see the end. If you didn't do your homework, here you go. Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 14. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? And you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land, in order that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog." Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? And it will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that my fury will mount up in my anger. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day I will surely be a great, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him. And I shall rain on him and on his troops and on the many places who are peoples who are with them a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And I shall magnify myself and sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. The Lord will bring about a tremendous victory, but I'm telling you people, this is heartbreaking stuff. There was offered another way. God draped Himself in humanity. He was born a virgin. He lived among men. He was mocked. He was beaten, he was spit upon, he was scourged, and he was despised, and he was crucified. But three days later, he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death in the grave. And he appeared alive and in glory to more than 500 brethren at one time. He then gave to the church the Holy Spirit, who gave to the church gifts, who sent to the nations apostles and preachers and pastors and evangelists. And the heart of God was that none would perish, but all would come to salvation, but they would not have it. And this is what it has come to. There is another way. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you not please preach the gospel to somebody this week? It says in Ezekiel 33, uh, 33, Surely I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord. But the nations have rallied against him, according to Psalm 2. And the Lord will judge, and he will prove himself faithful on behalf of Israel. And Israel will not be removed from the land. They will not. Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them in their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord. We know that the nations will continue to gather against Israel. We know that from Zechariah chapter 12. If you would go there very quickly, this will be our last spot. Zechariah, it's the second to last book in the uh, Old Testament. Please go to Zechariah chapter 12 where we will see explicitly that all the nations in the last day scenario will continue to gather against Israel and Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12 starting in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord. Davar Adonai in Hebrew. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. He identifies himself. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now this culminates in the battle of Armageddon, which is expressly all the nations of the earth gathered against Israel, specifically Jerusalem, under the leadership of Antichrist. 
That takes place at the end of the tribulation period, which takes place after the rapture of the church. Amen? Which could happen at any moment. Ah, I was hoping right then that would have been so climactic. Would have been awesome. Would have been the best sermon of my life. But we know, God says expressly, that the nations will continue, continue, continue to turn against Israel, but they will not be removed from the land. Now look what happens in the end at the Battle of Armageddon, verse 8. Verse 8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And verse 10 now, we see the salvation of Israel. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. At the end of the tribulation period, at the battle of Armageddon, all the nations on the Antichrist are gathered in the valley of Armageddon against Jerusalem. And it is at that very moment, it is also described in Revelation 19, please read it this week, Revelation 19, it is also described there that in the midst of that battle, the Lord God returns on a big white horse, and His name is faithful and true, and there is a name written on His thigh which nobody knows, and He is a King of kings and Lord of lords, and He returns to defend Jerusalem at that moment in history, and it is then that Israel looks upon Him whom they have pierced, and they weep, because they missed their Messiah the first time. But they now see him and they do not miss it. And as Paul said in Romans eleven twenty three, and thus all Israel will be saved. Now we pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and, on the, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Now we are told that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, that which is pictured here, parallel to Revelation 19, your homework, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives. At the first coming of Jesus Christ, he was presented at the Messiah from the Mount of Olives. Remember, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And he will come again to the Mount of Olives. It is inconceivable to me how Christians could possibly suggest the idea that God is done with Israel. That when it, How could they believe that? When God comes again, he comes to Israel. If he were done with Israel, why would he come back to Israel? He doesn't come to America. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes to Israel when he comes again. How could you say he's done with them if he is coming to them? He sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. We're told that it splits in half. Part of it moves to the north, part of it to the south. Very interesting. July 11, 1927. geologists or whatever you call them there, discovered a fault line running under the Mount of Olives from east to west. Now, God doesn't need the fault line to split the mount, but every once in a while in history, God throws you and I a little prophetic bone. 
A little bone that says, watch and pay attention and look, I'm going to split this mountain in half one day. I'm going to put a fault line there just to increase your faith and excite your hearts. Now, did you know that you're in the next verse? You are in the next verse, the last half of it. Verse 5. This is not us. This is people in Israel in the first phrase. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. People are going to be running because the mountain is going to be split in half. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now here you are. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. When you read Revelation 19, amen, amen. When you read Revelation 19, it will be very, very clear to you that the holy ones are the church. Because we will be pictured there at an event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And it says that we are clothed in fine white linens, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And it is after that that the Lord comes on the big white horse, and you and I on little horses and our white things. Get them, Lord! Get them, Lord! There you are in Zechariah 14, verse 5. Did you miss our last trip to Israel? Don't worry about it. You're going. Verse 6, And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. Last verse, And the Lord will be king Over all the earth, in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. In that day it will be the name of Jesus Christ, not Allah, not Muhammad, not Mahdi, but Jesus Christ. He is in control. He is working it for glorious salvation. Is he in control of your life tonight? Christian, this is not a moment in history to be playing games. If you're in a wrong relationship, be done with it now. If you're online doing things you shouldn't do, just disconnect it, break it, throw it away, do what you got to do. Are you loving your wife like Christ loves the church? Are you submitting to your husband as the church submits to Christ? Are you following after the Lord Jesus Christ with every fiber of your being? If you're ever going to do it, now is the time to do it. Fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith and lay aside everything that entangles us so easily. Every encumbrance, get rid of it tonight. We're living in the final moments, amen? Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. I ask now, Lord, that your spirit would come and deal with our hearts. Any areas where we are in error, where we've begun to wander in these last days. Lord, in your grace, deal with us. Search our hearts, Lord. See if there be any wicked way and restore in us a right spirit. Be merciful to your people, Lord. We are humbled and honored to live in these last days. We want to live for your glory. We want to work for your kingdom. Increase our faith tonight, Lord. Do a work in our hearts, a purifying work as we look for your coming. Amen.